Genesis chapter 22. And we've been going through Abraham. Abraham, according to Galatians chapter 3, the man of faith. And uh, we, uh, last couple of sessions, looked at chapter 22, the offering of Isaac, which really is the climax of Abraham's life, his life of faith. Uh, uh, climax is there in, in Genesis chapter 22 with the offering of Isaac. And then after Genesis 22, the story of the life of Abraham uh, begins to transition rather rapidly to the life of Isaac. Genesis 22, the offering of Isaac. Genesis chapter 23 uh, records the death of Abraham's wife Sarah for burial. And then chapter 24, Abraham sends his servant to get a wife for Isaac. And then in chapter 25, the death of Abraham. We're just going to take a look at the last few verses of Genesis chapter 22. And uh, I'll go ahead and read those. I'm going to start with verse 19 to get the connection from the uh, previous story. Then Abraham returned, that's returned from Mount Moriah with Isaac. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. By the way, I want to thank uh, Caitlin uh, Nail for my water here. And thank you to whoever put the hand moisturizer in the men's bathroom. That was a really good move, whoever did that. Thank you. Let's let's keep it stocked that way as well. Appreciate that. Um, where were we? Uh, verse 19. <laughs> and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother. She has borne sons to your brother Nahor. Uz the firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlap, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight sons to Abraham's brother Nahor. And so you'll uh, remember uh, from... No, you won't remember. It was probably a couple of years ago that we were on this here. That uh, uh, Terah was the father. Abraham, uh, he had several sons. Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. A daughter named Sarai that we know of in the Bible. Nahor married Milcah. And we have here that word reaches Abraham sometime after the death of... or Sometime since the sacrifice... Uh, of Isaac that uh, that his brother and uh, sister-in-law have had children, and then it mentions that um, uh, one of the, one of the children's name one of the sons' name is Bethuel, and he was the uh, mother father of Rebekah, and that gets us the connection to the next couple of chapters. Chapter twenty-three uh, again records the death of Sarah. We're not going to spend much time on this. Uh, but let me just go ahead and read a few verses from chapter 23. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. If you do the math in the Bible, you figure out at this point then Abraham is 137. She died at Kirith Araba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. All right, so I'm just going to put up a map here. We've got uh, Hebron there at the bottom of the, of the land of Canaan, and that's where, where Sarah died. And then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. The Hittites were one of the Canaanite people groups in the region of Canaan. And he said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site so that I can bury my dead. And the Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. 
And so Sarah dies. He mourns. He requests a, a, the, uh, the option of, of uh, buying a burial site for Sarah. And then in the next verses, the bargaining process begins. Abraham, when the actual offer is made, settles immediately without bargaining on the named price for the land. And we'll begin in, I think, in verse uh, 14. Ephron answered, Abraham, listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight recurrent among the merchants. And so Ephron's field in Machpelah, near Mamre, both, which is right next to Hebron, both the field and the cave in it and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who came to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And so the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Just going to make a couple of observations. We'll make one practical application sometime later in the next chapter uh, from what we read here uh, this morning. I just want to kind of note a couple of things that I find interesting. Uh, note the, uh, the highly organized civic life in Canaan. Canaan, the, the, the real, you know, in, in school you learn that the cradle of civilization was, was Mesopotamia, where civilization first came into being, and, and in fact, biblically speaking, it was so. Uh, Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia being, whoa, being the region here from the Persian Gulf up this direction, the rivers, Euphrates and Tigris, that whole region there, uh, Mesopotamia. And Canaan, is down over here, not part of it. This is where you had the, the really big civil, civilizations and the uh, highly organized, progressive type things in, in, in industry and so forth. Like the land of Canaan was not so, and yet it was, it's much more so than you might have expected it to be. They, I find it interesting. Verse 16, they have a standard of weights and measures, okay, according uh, to the weight current among the merchants. They had a standard of weights and measures that was all agreed upon. And then in verses 17 and 18, uh, and also verse 21, you, it says that uh, the land was deeded to, or other translations said made sure. It mentions the borders of the land, the field that was there, the cave and the trees. And if you look later in, in Genesis, chapters 49 and 50, about 200 years later, uh, Jacob... Uh, who hadn't been living living in the land there at all, had been living in Egypt for a while, is buried in that same uh, cave and the deed is not disputed by the Hittites about 200 years after this transaction takes place. They're, the descendants of, of those people did not dispute the deed. So then we move on now to chapter 24. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. And he said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? 
Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on an oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. <clears throat> if the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. <clears throat> Only do not take my son back there. And so the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. And then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. And he set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. Okay, so you've got a picture there of the map of what's going on, starting probably in, Her, uh, in Hebron, uh, possibly further south from there, and then traveling up to Nahor where Abraham's relatives live. This has been very close to the region of Haran. It's a distance of about 400 or 500 miles. would have taken a, a, a camel train at most about two weeks to get there. I looked this up. It was rather surprising. A, a camel, uh, in a, uh, a, a pack camel can carry 200 kilograms, that's like 450 pounds a, a day in, in, a, in a train about uh, 40 miles per day. So a couple, couple weeks journey up to where Abraham's relatives live to make this arrangement. And uh, in verse 2 here it mentions, he said to his, his chief servant or to his oldest servant, and if you look back uh, in chapter 15 we see his chief servant's name was Eliezer. Abraham intended to, to leave all of what he owned to Eliezer because he had no children of his own. And so in all likelihood, I think it's quite fair to take it that we're speaking of this same Eliezer here. He, Eliezer is the, uh, uh, this is 55 years later now, so Eliezer would have been considerably older, probably in his 80s, but people lived much longer then. Um, and so he could still have been quite functional in, in his 80s. And if you'll, you'll notice too that uh, even in this chapter here, uh, Isaac is 40 years old when his father sends to get him, get him a wife. And so people fairly uh, look at the, at the genealogical records. They married later and had children later as well. And they were living very long lifespans compared to now. As we read this story, we want to notice the relationship between Eliezer, uh, the, uh, the employee servant, and his master, uh, and his master or employer, Abraham. Uh, Eliezer is presented as a very capable man. He's a tremendous example of what a, a servant ought to be. He has a great relationship with his, his master or his employer, Abraham. And so as we look, as we go through the passage, uh, when we notice Eliezer, uh, we want to notice these characteristics of an ideal servant so that we can learn spiritual lessons and be challenged on a spiritual level to exhibit the same faithfulness and devotion in our service to our Master, the Lord. In verse 2, uh, we read that Abraham put Eliezer in charge of everything that he had. This was, this was Eliezer's job. He was responsible for all of Abraham's stuff. He would have been responsible uh, for Abraham's money, for his cattle, for his sheep, his goats, his donkeys, and his other servants, making sure that everything, Abraham's whole operation, runs smoothly and efficiently and profitably. And that's all for the good of the family and for everyone involved. And in verse 10, we see that Abraham, uh, the servant is taking ten of Abraham's camels and, quote, all sorts of good things from his master. 
And so Abraham entrusted Eliezer. So Abraham so trusted Eliezer that he delegated him the very important and delicate job of finding a wife for his son. Another name for it, we would say Eliezer was, was the manager of Abraham's estate. Another word for that is a steward, somebody who's in charge of taking care of somebody else's possessions or manager. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we, we find an application. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 read, Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man is found faithful. If you're going to manage a Burger King, you have to be a faithful manager or you'll get fired. Um, they're looking for good managers. People are responsible. They're going to show up on time and they're not only going to show up on time, they're going to make sure everybody else shows up on time as well. Uh, you need to make sure that the cash register money is taken care of, that the, the rules of McDonald's way of, of running things are done according to the McDonald's way, uh, that the place is clean and presentable. It's not your job to sweep the floor, but you need to make sure that somebody does it. You are responsible for everything that gets done so that your boss, the owner of the restaurant, is making a good profit. And if he does, hopefully uh, you, you make uh, good money as well. That's what it is to be a manager or a steward. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, we can make application to ourselves very nicely that we, as servants of Jesus Christ, are stewards as well. Everything that we have, our money, our time, our energy, our possessions, our intelligence, our strength, our abilities, everything that we have has been given to us from God and He hasn't given it to us so that we can do what we want with it. The manager at McDonald's can't walk up to the cash register, take out several hundred bucks and go to the store and buy himself some new sports equipment. It's got to be deposited in the bank, so forth and so on. It's got to be taken care of properly. And in the same way, God has not given us all of these things to spend on ourselves as, as well. Yes, we, we, um, he's given us everything to enjoy. We, we read in, in one of the, the epistles. But really we are managers, stewards of what God has given us. And we need, to be, we need to be administrating our lives in such a way that we bring the most glory to God. Uh, we are to use our money uh, for Him. We are to use our time for Him. We are to order our lives in a way that we are productive servants and managers of the things that God has given to us. We also see in Eliezer a man who was influenced by Abraham's example. He had lived with Abraham a long time and he had learned and he picks up on a number of things from Abraham. Back in chapter 18, verse 2, we read of Abraham. I'll just go ahead and read it. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried to the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Now this... This bowing low to the ground, remember most people weren't serving uh, the one true God around them. Uh, this, they probably bowed down to their idols and yet there was nothing in front of him. This is a practice of Abraham to bow to the ground. And so Eliezer picks up on that. And we see other characteristics of Abraham in Eliezer as well as Eliezer imitates many good things from Abraham. We see him doing that throughout the chapter. And then in verse 26 we read of chapter 24, the man bowed down, that's Eliezer, bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. 
And as for me, the Lord has led me on this journey to the house of my master's relatives. Eliezer followed in the footsteps of Abraham. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we read that we are to, quote, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, we read, Paul writes, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You know, our lives are to be modeled after the, our Master, after the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to get to know Him. The better we get to know and to love our Master, the more we will become like Him. And we see Eliezer seems to have a great deal of affection for Abraham. He really likes Abraham. And that is to be part of our life as we love and appreciate the Lord Jesus. And as I said, we become more and more like Him. Well, at this point now, chapter 24, Abraham is about 140 years old. It's about three years after the death of Sarah. It mentions here that he was old and well advanced in years. And it seems like he is quite concerned that perhaps he may not be here much longer at all. He may go ahead and, 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 and pass away. We know from the, from the narrative that he still has 35 years left in him, but he fears that his end is coming. It says here that he's old and well advanced in years, um, seems to be failing physically. Uh, and so he wants to see that Isaac is married especially since the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham rests on Isaac having a son of his own. You'll remember God made great promises to Abraham. He would be the father of a great nation and through that nation would come the Savior. And in order for that to be fulfilled, he had to have a son. That was why it was such a big deal that Isaac eventually be born. Well, now Isaac is about 40 years old, no children, not even married yet. And so Abraham wants to make sure that that is taken care of. You know, we can stop and think about that for just a moment. It's rather an interesting thought. God had plainly told Abraham that Isaac was the son of the promise and that it would be through Isaac that this nation would come. In other words, God had given his word that not only would Abraham have a son, but then when promising it was Isaac, he was promising that Isaac would have children as well. And yet Abraham makes sure that Isaac gets a wife so that that will be fulfilled. Abraham could have simply relied on the promise of God that Isaac would be a father, but there is no inconsistency with taking God at his word and making sensible plans. I think there's something that we can learn there ourselves. In fact, this is a proper balance between God's sovereignty, I trust God that he will give me a posterity that will be a great nation. I, I believe that promise, God's sovereignty, and our human responsibility. Eliezer, go to my relatives and get Isaac a wife. And that's true in our lives as well. God has given us many promises. But it is not wrong to uh, make sensible plans in keeping with those promises as well. For instance, God has promised to supply all of our needs. That does not, God's promise does not diminish our responsibility to work. For younger, for younger people to get an education, 
For when you go into that job interview, well, you know, it's really in the Lord's hands if I get that job or not. I've prayed about it. Okay, that doesn't diminish your responsibility uh, to dress appropriately, look a person in the eye, shake their hand, and answer, be ready to answer questions intelligently. Once you have that job, it's still your responsibility to show up on time and then to handle your money in a responsible way. God has promised that He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. That does not diminish our responsibility to order our life in a way that promotes godly living. In Romans chapter 13, verse 14, we read, Do not make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. That is, uh, don't order your life in such a way that you are very likely to fall into sin and temptation. If you struggle with alcohol, don't live in an apartment above a bar. Since God tells us not to marry an unbeliever, don't date unbelievers. Okay, in case parents aren't aware of this, nobody dates today. They just hang out. They just hang out with one another. They're just friends. This is nothing actually new. Back when I was in vet school, in fact, that's 30 to 35 years ago, it was not unusual for people on, on a college campus to be living in sin, sexual immorality, in other words, fornication, sex without marriage, and yet insist that they were only friends. Since God tells us to remain pure, don't spend periods of time alone with anyone of the opposite sex who is not your spouse. When it comes to marriage, and so now it comes to the issue of marriage. Here's Abraham arranging a, a marriage for his son. When it comes to marriage, there are those Christians who would seem to say that what a young person, a young Christian person should do is pray that the Lord will bring them along the right spouse, occupy themselves with the Lord's work, and then really do nothing else but wait for that right person to come along. But throughout the Bible, the custom was that someone, usually the parents, arranged for the marriage of their children. And here in this case, Eliezer says, but what if she doesn't want to come back? Should I bring Isaac along up to, 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 to go to meet her so they can kind of figure out if they want to get married or, or, or not? And Abraham says no, but he isn't saying no because in and of itself that's a bad idea. He's saying no because he doesn't want Isaac to leave the land of Canaan like he had done in the past. He said, I want Isaac, we're supposed to stay here in this land. You go, bring her back. And Abraham, the man of faith at this point of time, knowing that he's in the will of God, has absolute faith that, that his servant will find the, the right girl and will be able to bring her back as well. And so in the Bible, the process was considerably more active than simply praying for the right spouse and waiting for him or her to show up. We will consider this matter further when the servant arrives at the town of Nahor. So, Let's just read again. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want 
you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. We'll stop there for now. He says, don't go get a wife from the Canaanites. I want you to swear that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living. Now, let's stop and think about these Canaanites again. We noted earlier uh, this morning that Abraham in chapter 23, we read through part of that chapter, and we saw there that Abraham had a very good, cordial, respectful relationship with the Canaanites who were living in the land. The Hittites were one subgroup of Canaanites. There were other subgroups as well. Back in chapter 14, Abraham's three Hittite, that is Canaanite friends that lived in the same region as he, helped him rescue Lot who had been carried off into captivity. And they allowed Abraham, they respected him so much that they allowed Abraham to be the leader of their rescue party. Abraham had, throughout his time in Canaan, made it public knowledge that he worshipped and followed the Lord, the I Am. And although the Canaanites worshipped idols and were regarded by God as being wicked, chapter 15, verse 16 mentions the, the Amorites whose wickedness had not yet reached full measure, there was much mutual respect for each other. And so they got along well. Abraham, they knew that Abraham worshipped this God and he didn't worship their idols. They respected him. They had good relationships with one another. But when it came to marriage, Abraham was clear and insistent. He said, don't get a wife from the, from the Canaanites. And when we stop and think about it, God had not yet given any instructions or prohibitions as to who Isaac was to marry or not to marry. Isaac couldn't just simply go out and marry another Israelite girl. There weren't any Israelite girls at this time yet. Those were the descendants of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. But instinctively, Abraham knew that getting a wife from the Canaanites was a bad idea. And we'll see that Isaac himself and his wife, eventually Rebekah, felt the same way. If you, if you turn to uh, chapter 27, uh, verse 46, we read, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among these women of the land, from, the Hittite, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. And so, Jacob, so Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself from there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So Isaac and Rebekah felt very much the same way. You don't marry somebody from, from the Canaanites. And, and just take a page back here to, 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 uh, to uh, uh, chapter 26 and verse 34. Let me just go back to the genealogical chart there. So this would have been uh, Esau, uh, Isaac's other son. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the son of Beeri, the Hittite, also Basemath, the daughter of Eglon, the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. 
And then in chapter 28, finally Esau realizes that this is, this is, these marriages to these Canaanite women were displeasing to his mother and so he ended up marrying a third wife, the daughter of Ishmael, his cousin. I don't think that that really fixed the problem. Uh, the problem was uh, not fixable. So instinctively Abraham and eventually Isaac and Rebekah realize uh, that marrying the, someone from among the Canaanites was not a good idea. If you stop and go down the list further, you get down to Joseph, who was living in Egypt. Um, he was given a wife of a heathen uh, priest, his daughter, uh, to, to marry, and he married her. There was no prohibition against marriage with, with other nations. There wasn't anybody but other nations other than within that small family. But when the Lord brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, God then gave his commandments. Actually, it's later on in Deuteronomy that we read it. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Please turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses is speaking to the people just before they go into the land of Canaan. And he says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. It's got the Canaanites in the list, but there's always this kind of change of names in there. And, and these are all basically considered to be uh, Canaanites. Uh, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do with them. Break down the altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire, for they, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. And so God here, through Moses, very clearly instructs them, you are not to marry anyone from those nations around you. And yet... As you continue to read through the history of the nation of Israel, you will find out that this was probably the underlying problem that was the root problem of all of their other problems that they had was that they refused to obey God in this and they married these foreign wives who did not worship the Lord their God. And yes, indeed, it exactly came true. They uh, uh, led them into idolatry and for this idolatry which got worse and worse God had to repeatedly judge the nation of Israel they would repent they'd do it again over and over and over again until finally uh, God removed the people of Israel from the land taken off into captivity into Assyria and into Babylonia and even after the return from the Babylonian captivity we read in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah yet this sin continued to persist of marrying foreign women. We have the same teaching for the believer today in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and elsewhere. We'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 14. 
We can make application to marriage in this. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will live among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The believer is clearly told not to marry an unbeliever. We have uh, the same teaching in First uh, Corinthians chapter seven, verse thirty-nine, and First Corinthians nine, verse five, as well. For a believer to marry an unbeliever is spiritual disaster, and it is a spiritual disaster that cannot be undone. You make some of the most important decisions of your life when you are most foolish during your, during your youth. Um, and so listen to what the Word of God has to say. Take advice from God. Be sure that you marry a believer. Don't even head down the path of marrying an unbeliever. You are, you are headed in two opposite directions and there is no way that you will be able to live your life as God would have intended you to live if you end up marrying an unbeliever. So, we've got two things we have to consider. Abraham had good, friendly relationships with the Canaanites. But he had no thought of his son marrying them. And I think we can learn from this as well. I remember when I was younger, there were a few Christians who seemed to think that it was their job when they ran into somebody. And you have to remember the culture was different back when I was a child. There was more of a respect for God. Um, I mean, of course, I was born in 1964. So, I mean, you had... Uh, all sorts of, of, of drug culture and, and, and free love and free sex. And yet, that was a minority part of the culture yet. And so, um, uh, things were bad. Uh, they've gotten a lot worse since then, I guess, is, is what, I'm, what I'm trying to say. And it seems like there would be a few Christians who thought it was their job when they ran into somebody who wasn't displaying the outward uh, actions of what a Christian ought to be, that it was their job to ridicule them. Um, uh, you know, you saw a, a girl was wearing a, a skirt that was no doubt too short, which was the style back in those days, and they would yell something out, out the window at her about, you know, her skirt needing to be longer. You know, or a guy back then uh, with the hippie culture, it was very common for them to have very long hair. You know, and the Bible says that it's a shame for a man to have long hair. And they, they'd inform them, you know, out the window that, that they needed a haircut. Well, this is stupid, okay? Uh, these are not believers. We don't expect unbelievers to behave like believers. They need to come to a recognition that they are wrong, repent, uh, put their trust in the Lord, and then the Lord will begin to help them to live a Christian life and to clean up those various areas of their life as they develop convictions about them. But at the same time, you don't marry one of them. And so, um, friendly, respectful relationships. Abraham did this again by building an altar and worshiping the one true God. So it was perfectly clear to them who he served and who he didn't serve. What he approved of and what he didn't approve of. And if, if it was something such as a business dealing, he could have good cordial relationship with, with them. Didn't feel it necessary to criticize every single thing that they did wrong. 
um, uh, but, but showed them kindness and they respected him. On the other hand, there was no way his son was going to marry one of their daughters. And so today, with unbelievers, we are respectful, we're courteous, we're kind, we're loving, but we don't marry unbelievers. In verse 3, back to Genesis chapter 24, In verse 3, he makes the servant swear. He gets a promise from him. And then in verse 4, he said, don't don't get uh, from the daughters of the Canaanites, who am I living, but go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Go to my country and to my relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. And so we we noted before, what's he referring to as going to his country his country and to his relatives. It's up there near Haran, Nahor. Uh, That region there is where his relatives are. He refers to that as his country, but you all probably know, right, that originally he was living down here in Ur. But there there is a sense in which that whole region as Mesopotamia was thought of as being the same region. And that's what he's saying. Go back to my region where my relatives are and get me uh, a wife for my son from there. Abraham's not. So Abraham refers to his to that as his country, and he refers to them as being his relatives. And so we see Abraham has a uh, Abraham still felt an affection, a closeness for his relatives, even though he had little communication with them. Uh, they were his family. Um, what did they believe? Did they believe in his God? It's pretty questionable exactly what they believed. Um, you'll notice that he went to the town of, of, of Nahor. There he, went to, he headed off to the town of Nahor. Well, who's Nahor? Nahor is... Oops. Nahor is, is this fellow right here, and those are his children who were living in the town of Nahor. Now, in Genesis 11, it tells us that Nahor stayed in, in Ur. But obviously, at some point in time... He decided, got good word that it's better living up there, and so he and his family uh, moved uh, back to, uh, or moved up to the region of of uh, Haran and established this city there called Nahor, where he and and uh, his descendants then lived. Uh, Nahor uh, being gone by this time, but you've still got Bethuel and so forth, his son, and then his grandchildren who are living there. So Abraham had an affection, a closeness for his relatives mentions them as being his family, his country, even though he had little communication with them. You know, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham had no desire to return to his country. He didn't have any desire to return there. He could have returned there if he had wanted to, but he didn't want to. So he had left his family, and yet um, he still has a proper affection for them. They don't share very likely in all of his uh, understanding of, of who the one true God is. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, it mentions, actually, let me just quickly turn to it and read it. We read here as... Uh, um, 
We have here a list of how people will be in the last days and all sorts of sinful attitudes and actions that they have. And in 2 Timothy 3, verse 3, it mentions without natural affection. Without natural affection. Um, that is, uh, not normal. Most people have affection uh, for their family members, uh, for their children, uh, for their grandchildren, and so forth. It's just very natural for all people to have a, a, a love for that. And yet, do you find people today who have no natural affection uh, for their brothers, their sisters, who commit crimes against their own family members, horrendous crimes? Uh, you, you see that happening, and they have—they don't have that natural affection for their own family mem- for their own family members. You know, early in his call. uh, from God to leave his country and his family, we noted that Abraham failed to leave his family. His father, Terah, came with. In fact, Terah took over the leadership and Abraham allowed him to lead him and to influence him and it had a very bad effect on Abraham's life. And so, we can make application from this as well as we did before. Believers who have unsaved relatives need to be careful not to allow unsaved relatives to influence them in the wrong direction. But they also need to be careful to be kind and loving toward their unsaved family members. These are not opposites. It is something that needs to be done and one needs to ask for the Lord to give strength and wisdom in in some areas. Let me read that again. Believers who have unsaved relatives need to be careful not to allow unsaved relatives to influence them. But they also need to be careful to be kind and loving towards unsaved family members. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, we have this teaching found there with regard to a wife who has an unsaved husband. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So it's important that a person is not, does not allow their unsaved relatives to influence them. It's equally important to show love, affection, uh, kindness uh, to that unsaved relative. And here we even have, it mentions here that through their good behavior, wives can help to lead their unsaved husband to the Lord. Well, we're kind of in the middle of a passage, but the time has come to an end. So I think we'll go ahead and stop here and we'll pick up next time that I speak uh, with verse 4 again. We'll go ahead and commit ourselves to the Lord. Our God and Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for these lessons, these true stories from the Bible which bring to life Your truths. We thank You for uh, the example of this godly uh, servant Eliezer and for the example that he, that he sets, for the principles that we find in this chapter regarding uh, marriage and many other things. We pray for each one here. Pray for those young people who still have the uh, choice ahead of them as to marriage and, and to a choice of a spouse. This very important question that you would guide, you would lead, and that they would use your wisdom from your word as they make this very important decision. We ask for your help and blessing in all that we uh, come, come to this week. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.